Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from a career civil servant who is leading Singapore's drive towards digital government. This week, we hear from a business executive whose company is in the vanguard of efforts to develop software systems for self-driving cars. Safety and security go hand in hand. That's built into our DNA. The autonomous vehicles right now are part of a totally closed system. We do an initial GPS ping to localize, but otherwise the system is entirely closed. So this is an industry-wide issue. It's a safety-critical element. We will not see these cars deployed at scale unless society feels comfortable and the technologists and everyone who's liable for these technologies feel really comfortable that we have that solved. That's the voice of Gretchen Efkin, Vice President of Global Partnerships for Newtonomy, a leading software developer for self-driving cars. Welcome, Gretchen. Thank you. Tell us about Newtonomy. When was it founded? Newtonomy was created in 2013 by doctors Carl Yanyama and Emilio Frizzoli, who were collaborators during their time at MIT and also collaborators on projects here in Singapore. Why have you split your activities between Boston and Singapore? Boston is a natural landing place for new autonomy coming out of MIT. The Boston-Cambridge technology ecosystem is certainly one that's incredibly robust. MIT's connection to Singapore through the Singapore-MIT Alliance for Research and Technology brought Emilio here to the region back in 2007. 2007, in some ways, was a banner year for what was to become Newtonomy. Carl and Emilio were part of MIT's team that participated in the DARPA Challenge. Autonomous vehicle enthusiasts will know that the DARPA Challenge was a competition annually put on by the U.S. government to really push the boundaries in our imagination of what autonomous vehicle technology could be. So in 2007, Carl and Emilio collaborated on MIT's entrance to that competition, and they were a finalist. Also in 2007, the MIT Singapore Alliance was created. And so establishing Newtonomy with some roots here in Singapore harkens back to that time, back to 2007. One of the things that has really been foundational for Newtonomy's growth here was this element of bringing together Singapore's focus on its Smart Nation initiative, smart mobility as a key pillar of that, and having the government that's really focused on developing nascent technologies that will help it achieve those goals. I saw your founder talking about how Singapore was the best place in the world to pilot driverless cars. Is it because of that enabling environment? Absolutely. So environmentally, if you think about infrastructure in Singapore, it's relatively new. It's very well maintained. The government here is really encouraging of nascent technologies, in large part due to some of the research that Amelia was leading at the Singapore-MIT Alliance, which started to show the possibilities for autonomous mobility systems and the impact that they could have. One of the studies that Amelia is really well known for is looking at the impact of autonomous mobility on demand systems. And what a particularly seminal study indicated was that if you looked at the capacity of passenger cars in Singapore at that time was 800,000 vehicles. If you replaced those with optimized autonomous vehicles deployed to points of demand, you could actually service a greater number of trips more efficiently, meaning the passenger wait time would be shorter, with only 300,000 cars. So that's a difference of 500,000 cars. And if you think about pulling that out of an ecosystem and what that opens up in the infrastructure, the impact 
is very, very visually compelling. So you have a government that's really motivated and excited by the transformational properties that autonomous vehicles can bring to the transportation system. You also have consistent weather, reasonable weather to be testing in. So, you know, Singapore is a unique place in that regard. And they drive on the different side of the road. Right, exactly. As a left-hand drive country, we can be building our software to really be robust because we drive on the left here in Singapore and we drive on the right in Boston. Does that make very much difference to autonomous cars? Well, it does when you think about how you approach building the software. So we follow a formal methods-based approach where you have a hierarchy of roles. When you adapt to a new country and a new driving environment, you simply adapt the rules and the priorities to that local environment. So Boston, in contrast to Singapore, the infrastructure is aging. It's at different stages of repair as the city is undergoing its own revitalization. We also have a very different weather pattern in Boston, significant amounts of snow and things that autonomous vehicle technologies are still learning how to grapple with. And Um, snow is a real nightmare for self-driving cars, isn't it? I mean, it it makes it incredibly difficult to sense where people are or the road signs are or the kind of road markings. Right. So if snow is covering lane markings and light is reflecting off of snow banks for the LiDAR and different sensing systems, you know, there can be some fuzziness in the data there that the car needs to know how to navigate. You use formal methods for your driverless cars. Could you explain that a bit more and how that differs from what other people are doing? Sure. So compared with a deep learning or traditional program approach, formal methods is very much a rules-based approach. We like to think about it as when you're teaching a teenager how to drive, a teenager receives a rule booklet. It's not even really a full book or manual that details and outlines the rules of the road. And after a relatively short training time, you can be on your way as a licensed driver. And so the rules of the road are things like don't hit a person, don't hit a vehicle or any other obstacle, maintain your speed, stay in your lane. These types of rules are a limited number of rules and they have a hierarchy to them. We all know that there are rules that you can violate if that's the safest path. And so taking a formal methods and rules-based approach also then allows you, as you're diagnosing how the car has behaved, to see why a car has done what it's chosen to do. You know, is there a rule that has been adhered to or violated for a good reason or, or maybe not so much? And you can diagnose that and make corrections along the way. Does that enable you, the car to learn quicker? What it enables the programmers to do is to ensure that they know what the car is doing and can accurately predict what the car will do. And we'll contrast that with an approach like traditional programming or deep learning. If you think about a traditional programming approach, it becomes a giant decision tree, a real matrix of if-then statements. And it has to be built with millions, sometimes 10 million lines of code, because if you have to program for every possible instance, the number of if-then statements becomes infinite. And the problem with this is that if the car encounters something it's never seen before, you're not entirely sure what it will do. It may stop, but it may also do something unpredictable. And it's very difficult to figure out why. So an example uh, is Toyota, after a string of accidents, asked NASA to examine its code. Uh, And even after years of examining this code, NASA couldn't certify that the accidents were the fault of the code, but they 
couldn't certify that they weren't either. So when we think about safety and the ability to actually diagnose why something went wrong, having an approach where that's possible is really important. And that's clearly very important for liability. If the car gets into an accident, determining who is responsible, whether it's the hardware manufacturer, the software manufacturer, or the operator of that, isn't it? Absolutely. And how is that going to work out? Do you think the existing legal regimes are sufficient to determine where liability lies, or do you think we're going to need an updating of regulations? You know, industries where the technologies are really critical and how they're built and the ability to diagnose them, aeronautics, medical technologies, they use a formal methods approach for exactly this reason of being able to diagnose where problems went wrong. And I think much remains to be written on how this will play out for the automotive space as we think about where fault lies. This is something that we regularly talk about with regulators, with insurance companies. We're all learning in real time how this will eventually play out. And there's many software approaches to this space at the moment, and uh, certainly a lot to be learned on all fronts. And as I understand it, you're using LIDAR, radar, and visual clues as to what's going on on the road. Can you explain how they interoperate and how that differs from what some other people are doing? Sure. I think most autonomous vehicle companies are bringing together and fusing data from LIDAR, radar, and camera vision systems. One of the things we look at are what is the sensor configuration and suite for our own vehicles and how do we optimize that for our approach? How do we get enough information, synthesize that data appropriately so that we can have the car make the appropriate decision? There are different configurations of that. Some other players in the marketplace rely more on camera, rely more on sensors or additional LIDAR. It depends on approach. Some are very focused on the aesthetics of the vehicle and integrating them with the car. Others are perhaps less aesthetically inclined and more concerned about developing the software perhaps a little bit more quickly and and worrying about design later. So if you're responsible for the software on the car, how do you think the split in value is going to go in the future? I mean, how much value is going to be in manufacturing the tin box and how much in the, the kind of brains that run it? I think what's fascinating about this stage of the autonomous vehicle value chain is exactly this question of where is the scarce resource and where are the real margins as you deploy this technology. And what's your answer to that? The scarce resource right now is the autonomous system. This is incredibly complex technology. Nobody's gotten it right quite yet. We're all still building. And We firmly believe that there's probably a single digit number of teams out there in the world that are capable of really reaching something that can become a real product that's deployed. So we feel pretty good about where we are in the value chain. So how many test cars have you got on the road in Singapore and in Boston? We have about 14 cars in our fleet now in Singapore with more on the way. We have four cars in our Boston fleet. One of the things that we are looking at is adding capacity in both places and housing research and development cars in major cities is actually not that easy to find the space to do that. So we're ramping up facilities and vehicles at the same time. What are the biggest challenges in a technological sense? What are you discovering when you put these cars out on the road? Some of the complex issues in deploying the software and where we are now are things like avoidance, coming up to an obstacle that is out of the norm 
whether that's construction or something else blocking a path. So we have really solid capabilities here. It's something that we'd really like to improve. Another thing that we're working on is interactions with cyclists and pedestrians. That's another environmental difference between Singapore and Boston. In Singapore, the pedestrians, at least from what I've observed, seem to be a little bit more oriented to sticking to crosswalks and paying attention to walk signals. In Boston, it's very much more so a free-for-all. That's culturally how the city has evolved. And so ensuring that you have the kind of visibility and avoidance that's required is certainly a challenge for everyone in the industry. And the regulatory regime in the States is clearly a patchwork at the moment. Different states have kind of different regulations for self-driving cars, but there are attempts to harmonize that. How quickly do you think there will be a federal template for regulation across the US? You know, I think what you're touching on there is a big part of why Singapore has been so fantastic for us. The regulatory regime is very easy to communicate with. We have direct lines of communication. We're parts of advisory teams that they've put together on exactly this topic. And you know who the decision makers are, and they're committed to SWIFT and speedy answers and have very clear regulations in place. You're also dealing with one entity. So the challenge that you're pointing to in the states where we have city and state and federal in many layers is part of why we chose to do our initial testing in Singapore. There wasn't a regulatory framework for testing autonomous vehicles in Boston when the company started. We benefited from executive orders that were issued by the mayor of Boston and the governor of Massachusetts that allowed us to get on the road there. How things will play out in the U.S. at this point, it's likely that something will happen at the federal level, but states are acting you know, in the absence of that in order to try to attract companies like ours to test there. And one of the scare stories going around about autonomous cars at the moment is their vulnerability to being hacked, which obviously is a truly frightening scenario. What are you doing to stop that happening? We are, first and foremost, a safety-critical company. That's part of why we've chosen a formal methods approach in terms of how we build our cars. It's you can always diagnose where a problem went wrong. So safety and security go hand-in-hand. That's built into our DNA. The autonomous vehicles right now are part of a totally closed system. We do an initial GPS ping to localize but otherwise the system is entirely closed. So this is an industry-wide issue. It's a safety-critical element. We will not see these cars deployed at scale unless society feels comfortable and the technologists and everyone who's liable for these technologies feel really comfortable that we have that. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. One of the autonomous car companies I was talking to was saying that one of the big challenges is how autonomous cars relate to other autonomous cars. Do you think there needs to be a kind of standardized protocol so that all the companies active in this field, their cars can understand what each other's cars are doing? You know, one of the things that we think about a lot is backcasting from an ideal future scenario where, you know, autonomous cars using clean technologies are connecting people to where they want to go in the most efficient way, and we're achieving our smart cities goals. And if you imagine what that utopian vision looks like, it's a complex web of vehicles communicating with each other, communicating with the infrastructure. 
I think that's part of an ultimate solution. That's very limited right now, and there are what seems to be you know, some differences of opinions amongst the automakers around how that should go and how some of these networks should be built. So the approach we've taken at Newtonomy is to build our software assuming that none of those vehicle-to-vehicle or vehicle-to-infrastructure elements are there because we may have that in Singapore, but we may not have that in another city where we go to deploy. So in order to build the most robust software, we're taking the approach of build it as though none of that exists, and then we will have a truly robust solution as we start to work towards that end state. So the speed of adoption, in a way, will be determined by the level of coordination there is at the government level where you're operating. That will be a significant part of it. I think, you know, as we look at the rollout and adoption, we see this happening in two ways from the technology side. Obviously, the regulatory framework overlaps that. We view these vehicles being adopted initially in ride-hailing types of capacities, autonomous mobility on demand, whether that's, you know, a Grab, Uber, or Lyft type of service or something else, you know, a microtransit type of offering or even integrated as truly part of public transportation. We view that adoption curve happening much more quickly because the vehicle cost will be so high that it'll have to be operated in a commercial capacity for the economics to make sense. A second wave of adoption that we feel will come later will be in this question of personally owned vehicles and when can I have this driverless technology in my own vehicle. What would be a ballpark figure for the cost of a self-driving car? Self-driving cars now, depending on the vehicle build, as we look across our competitive set, is in the several hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the sensor suite and cameras that we were talking about previously, that componentry cost is enormously high. So as those components start to become standardized and produced in volume, we'll see those costs come down. And you know, eventually, this will get into the type of strike zone where you could have a commercially viable business. Now, the technology itself is challenging, but the human dimension of this is also going to be massively important. How resistant do you think we humans are going to be to the adoption of driverless cars? Clearly, a lot of stories about the losses of driving jobs in the US and elsewhere, the fear of entrusting your life to a system that you don't understand. Um, How much of a resistance is that going to be, do you think? What we've seen so far is so much excitement around autonomous vehicles. We're walking by one of the autonomous vehicle signage that's posted in this testing bed here, and people are taking selfies just with the sign. You know, they're excited about this. And as with all technologies, there's the early adopters who we've interacted with who are excited about this technology and what it opens up for them. And there will always be latent adopters who really need to trust the vehicle or take a much more cautious approach to adopting new technologies. And that's part of human nature. I think what we're really excited about is to start to reach in and touch some of those folks who are, by their nature, later adopters. The human-machine interaction point, I think there's probably no other time in human history where it's been more exciting to be somebody who works in that capacity and has that creative ability to bring humans and machines together to figure out how do we build that in such a way where these are things that are really working for us, making our lives better, safer, more efficient, and opening up opportunities for us, and making your commute pleasant. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place to be? (laughs) And that human-robot interaction, I mean, it's like in a booming academic discipline at the moment, isn't it? A lot of people are trying to figure out how best machines relate to people. Absolutely. And that's another reason why a Singapore-Boston connection for us is so important, because there's a lot of cultural 
cultural elements that come into play and how do you build something that's really globally relevant, you know, a platform that you can adapt to that local environment. And so having this really multicultural influence on that process for us is something that we're really excited about. Let's talk timings. How quickly do you think it will be before there's a robo-taxi fleet on the streets of Singapore? We will be dipping our toe in the water of that this year in 2018. Within a restricted zone? Within a restricted zone. And, you know, I think of it in concentric circles that will start with simple use cases at confined times of day as we start to learn more about this human-machine interaction point that we were discussing, you know, in a couple different ways. The ride feel, what was the smoothness of the ride and was the ride quality one that most people are comfortable with and feel safe with. One of the biggest pieces of feedback we get now on the ride quality from people who participated in our programs has been, oh, well, it drives better than the taxi driver who who drove me here. So we feel good about ride quality, but it's also something we will continue to work on and improve. There's also that in-vehicle experience where we are learning about what are the visual cues and elements that we can give to passengers that allow them to see what the car is seeing and understand how the car is processing information? And to what extent is that important? You know, our early research shows that for some, it's very important for the first 30 seconds or so, and then they go back to being on their smartphone once they realize that the car is driving comfortably and safely, and it seems to know what it's doing, they go back to their daily business and others who are really enthralled by the process. So it it ranges on the spectrum. And that's part of what we're excited to learn in this very limited initial commercial deployment that we'll be launching here soon. As the saying goes, it goes from terrifying to boring within a few minutes. It absolutely does. That is something we've seen consistently. We did the first public trials in 2016 here in Singapore and the camera footage of people's faces going from, you know, a, you know, a little bit anxious, you know, how is this going to go to exactly very quickly uh, staring out the window or staring at their phone, taking selfies, you know, showing them to the world. It's pretty remarkable. But, you know, the flip side of that is that on our daily commutes and as we are connecting from home to work to play or to meetings, we're unlocking productivity time, you know, on that journey. And, you know, I think designing for that from ride quality all the way through to, you know, a comfortable environment that allow people to be productive while they're in transit. So what's your best guess about when there will be mass adoption driving this concept? In an autonomous mobility on demand sense, we will see more and more cities with these types of offerings within the next five years. And where is Newtonomy on its corporate journey at the moment? You were required by Delphi not long ago. How are you going to scale up from what you're doing at the moment? Right. So one of the reasons that we were so excited to become part of what is now the Aptive family, about a week after our acquisition closed, Delphi became Aptive, at least the part of the company that we stayed with. And Aptive is all about green, connected, and autonomous. It's the perfect fit for us. It's part of why we were excited to join their portfolio of brands that are bringing these technologies to life. Our focus prior to that and remains today is launching a commercial service in Singapore, continuing to build Boston as an R&D hub as we grapple with you know some of the different challenges in the environment there. But what we also gained was the ability to partner with their internal development team that just put on a fantastic display at CES in partnership with Lyft and really see the possibilities of bringing these two teams together. You know, it's now clearly one of the top teams in the world focused on this problem. It's really exciting to be a part of. Thank you very much. That was a really interesting talk. Thanks. Thank you. 
We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And we'd love it if you were to write a review to help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. 